0: Well, the text that lies before us this morning, the 23rd Psalm, is perhaps the most beloved passage of Scripture in all of the Bible. And I see some of you already nodding your heads. As a matter of fact, I can attest as a pastor that often when I'm called to someone's house when they've just received tragic news, perhaps the death of a loved one or bad diagnosis concerning their health, or I'm asked to speak at a funeral. Or just someone who's going through massive suffering. Almost without fail. What I'm asked to read is Psalm 23. And that shouldn't surprise us. It's no mystery as to why people ask for this psalm to be recited to them. When they're in massive suffering. It's because it's such a comforting psalm. Isn't it? Just hearing it read is a comforting experience. The language. The poetry. The poetry. The truths that it teaches. And we're drawn to that comfort because life in a fallen world is difficult, isn't it? It's challenging. There's pain. There's suffering. There's loss. There's death. There's sin, our sin, and the sins that others commit against us. And in the midst of a fallen world, we need comfort in order to be able to continue and endure and persevere. That's why I find it fascinating that when I was studying this passage this week, I I, I turned open Matthew Henry's commentary on Psalm 23, a commentary I always advise that you consult when you're about to look at a passage of Scripture. And in the opening exposition of Psalm 23, here's what he says. He says, "...it is the duty of Christians..." It is the duty of Christians to encourage themselves in the Lord their God. It's not simply our privilege to encourage ourselves in the Lord our God. It is our duty. It is our responsibility. Why? Because the reality is in this fallen world, we need comfort, and so we're going to turn somewhere for it. We're either going to turn in on ourselves and try to distract ourselves from the difficulties of life. Try to numb ourselves. We're going to turn out towards something or someone else. And if it's not the Lord, it's wrong. It's sinful. We're to turn to Him for comfort. As our good shepherd. As our God. The God of all comforts. Our good shepherd. And so this morning, as we look at Psalm 23, I want us to be encouraged by three truths that this psalm lays out for us. Three truths that are meant to comfort us through the difficult journey of life in this fallen world. First of all, we're to take comfort in the person of our Good Shepherd. We'll see that in verse 1. We're to take comfort in the character of our God who He is, and the gracious relationship that He's entered into with us as the sheep of His pasture. Second of all, the implication of that relationship is that we are to take comfort in the provision of our Good Shepherd. Because He's our shepherd and we are His sheep, as a Good Shepherd, He provides for us. We'll see that in verses 2 and 3. And then lastly, we'll see that because He is our Good Shepherd, we're to take comfort in the protection of that he promises us and gives us in this life. And we'll see that in verses four through six. And again, my hope and prayer this morning is that we ourselves will be greatly encouraged by these incredible truths that lay before us that God has given to us in this psalm. So let's look first then at the comfort that we have in the person of our good shepherd. Look at Psalm 1 with me. I'm sorry, Psalm 23, verse 1. A psalm of David. So David wrote the psalm. And he says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now, it's a little bit more striking to read this verse in a, a uh, translation of Scripture that says, I am is my shepherd, right? We can almost hear the Lord is my shepherd. And it's like, it just rolls over our ears and we're like, yeah, well, I've heard that a thousand times. How about I am is my shepherd? That's what David's saying here. Yahweh is my shepherd. And if you know anything about that word, the Lord there, when it's in all caps in the English, that's the covenant name that God revealed to Israel, revealed to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. You remember, Moses is sent by God to deliver the people, and Moses retorts, Lord, but who do I say sent me? And he says, Say, I am that I am. And so this is the name that the covenant name that God reveals to his people. And David's saying, That one, that God who delivered his people from their captivity to Egypt, the God who back in Genesis chapter one created everything by simply speaking it into existence. The God who is eternal. The God who is all-powerful. The God who is greater than any of the gods of the other nations. The Lord our God, who knows all, sees all, sovereignly rules over all, has created all. He is my shepherd. An incredible reality. And it's not uncommon, by the way, for David to refer to God as his shepherd. You can see that all throughout the Psalter. And it also wasn't uncommon in the ancient world to refer to your God or your king, the one who ruled over you, as your shepherd. This is well attested in ancient history, in numerous places. It's also scattered all throughout the Old Testament, as far back as Genesis chapter forty-eight, fifteen, where Jacob says, the Lord has been my shepherd my entire life. And we see it again and again pop up through the major prophets. In Isaiah chapter 40 verse 11. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 10. Ezekiel 34 11, Zechariah 13 7. And on and on. That's just a few examples. Over and over and over again. The Lord refers to his relationship with his people as him being a shepherd. And them being his sheep. Now, just so you know, that's not very flattering. To be likened to a sheep. You guys know anything about sheep? I'm going to use an impolite term here. To sum up sheep in a word, they're stupid. They're utterly dependent upon someone else to care for them. There are records of them walking along, falling off of cliffs, walking through fires, drowning because they're trying to drink water and they go in too far, and they they eat garbage, they eat things that will kill them. And so they are utterly dependent. That's why a shepherd has to always be with his sheep. And out of all the analogies in the world, that's what the Lord says, that fits my relationship with you. You are completely, utterly dependent upon me. And here's the amazing thing. David is saying, the God of the universe, the creator of all, he has graciously entered into that kind of covenant relationship with me. Little sinful insignificant me, and you, Israel, not because you were greater than all the other nations, because you're small and insignificant that I might be glorified. I've entered into this relationship with you. And the Lord promises that this relationship is going to get even more intimate in a coming day. He says in Ezekiel chapter 34 that he is going to come himself And be the shepherd of his people. Because the people wanted human shepherds, didn't they? They wanted human kings just like the nations had. And so the Lord provided those and they were terrible shepherds. They didn't care for the people. They abused the people. They abused the flock. And so the Lord says in Ezekiel 34, I'm going to come and I will be your shepherd. And how do we see that promise realized? When Jesus comes, when the Son of God, who is God himself, takes on flesh. What are we told about him in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6? You remember that the magi, the wise men, are following this star. They've heard prophecies about a Christ child who who was to be born. And they come to Herod and say, do you know where he's going to be born? Jesus was probably two or three at this time. And Herod consults the scribes and the Pharisees, and they say, because of a prophecy from Micah 5, 2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, let me, tell, let me read Micah 5, 2 for you. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So what are the gospel writers telling us? What is Matthew telling us? Jesus is that long-awaited shepherd. The Son of God has taken on flesh. He's become a sheep himself what does john say about him the baptist behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world that's how we came as our good shepherd fulfilling that promise back in ezekiel chapter 34 which is exactly why jesus can say what in john's gospel in john chapter 10 verse 11 he says i am the good shepherd Russ already read this this morning. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And so here's the situation. God became man, became a sheep, laid down his life, died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, living the life we failed to. We're disobedient, wandering sheep. Isaiah 53, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Jesus comes as the sacrificial lamb. And he is now our good shepherd. God has graciously entered into that kind of covenant relationship with you. Where you are completely dependent upon him. And yet he is dependent upon nothing. And no one. He doesn't need you. You desperately need him. And because he is self-sufficient. And we have this gracious relationship with him. We can say along with David what? I shall not want. How could I possibly want or lack anything that I need if this God has committed himself to my good? Now, you may be sitting there and saying, well, I don't feel very contented. I feel like I have a lot of needs that aren't being met. It's not true. God has created us in his image, body and soul, and he commits himself to taking care of everything that we need In order to bring glory to his name. Don't compare yourself to what other people have. He gives one child this much and another child that much. This child that kind of health and this child that kind of health. This child that level of sanctification and this child that. He has given you everything that you need. Folks, this is an objective truth. Whether you are subjectively experiencing it or not. It is an objective reality that you have everything you need. Because of the provision and protection of your good shepherd. Is there any greater comfort than that? That he's committed himself to us? That his good and our glory are so inextricably linked? That as he glorifies himself, that is our good? This is the great comfort of this psalm. And as if that weren't enough, David then piles up more reasons for us to be comforted. So he doesn't just say, take comfort in the person of your good shepherd. He goes on to say, take comfort in the provision of your good shepherd. So let's look at verses 2 and 3 together. Because of this relationship that we have, God says, I'm going to provide for you. So let's look at how he does that. First in verse 2, David says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, if you know anything about the life of David, you know that he was once a little shepherd boy, wasn't he? Long before he was king of Israel, he was a lowly shepherd boy tending his father's sheep in his father's field. And then the Lord called him to be this king. And so David knows full well that one of the vital parts of caring for your sheep is making sure that they have good, healthy, green pasture. That's their primary means of sustenance. And if you know anything about the geography of the Bible in the Middle East, you know that it's really hard to find vegetation because it's arid. It's a desert, essentially. And so it was a common practice of the shepherds, and still to this day, um, that they would have to move from place to place just in search of, of some decent pasture land for the sheep to eat and then move on somewhere else. And what David is saying here, he's really idealizing the situation Uh, That the Lord has put us in. As our good shepherd. He cares perfectly and abundantly for the sheep. And so he's saying I'm like a sheep that the Lord has led to this pasture. Where there's green grass as far as the eye can see. And I'm never going to run out of it. And he tells me eat deeply. Gorge yourself on this pasture. To the point where what? I'm not just eating the green pastures. But what does he say in verse 2? I actually lie down in them. Now, if you know anything about sheep, they don't lie down. If a sheep lies down, it's in a bad way. Or it's super content, full, and knows it's safe and protected. And David's saying, that's what I'm like. I I, I have so much, my needs are so met, I can rest. And what's he talking about here? He's talking about the physical and spiritual provision that the Lord has provided for him. But what I really want to zero in on here is the spiritual provision. For David, as a lost sinner, God has graciously entered into a covenant relationship with him. And David knows spiritual death is separation from God. And so God has given him life and spiritual nourishment by giving him life in that covenant. And then how does, how does David um, feed and be nourished through his relationship with the Lord? It's through the word that God has provided in the Old Testament. And so David's feasting spiritually on God's word as his spirit takes it and applies it. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us today. But who is the one? We now have a fuller revelation in the new covenant. And we understand that the reason we have spiritual life is because the Lord has provided for us His Son. We have spiritual life because the Son has come and done everything necessary for our salvation in His life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And now in Him, we have the spiritual nourishment that we need. This is exactly what Jesus says, by the way, in John chapter 10, verse 9. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Our spiritual life, our spiritual nourishment is our union with Jesus and the fact that we are in him. But that's not the only way that the Lord spiritually provides for us. He also spiritually provides for us through the means of grace, through his word, through prayer through the Lord's Supper, through fellowship with with other believers. But primarily, it all circles around what? The Word, the preached Word. And this should make perfect sense to us, because you remember when Peter denies Jesus three times in the Gospel accounts? You remember he tells Jesus on the night that he's going to be betrayed, though everyone fall away, I will stand. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me, Peter, three times. Peter does. He's devastated. And so do you remember, though, in John 21, when the Lord reinstates, when Jesus reinstates Peter, he asks him three times, do you love me more than these? And three times Peter says, Lord, you know that I do. Do you remember what Jesus says to Peter in response? It's like, Peter, I know you love me, so you know what I want you to do? I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to tend my flock. I want you to feed my sheep. And you know what? We see Peter do just that, don't we? Why? Because he takes everything that Jesus then teaches Peter about the Old Testament and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And when we get to the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, what is Peter doing? He's preaching the word. And in that act, he's feeding the sheep. Those who are sheep of another fold are hearing the voice of Jesus, and they're coming into the flock And those who are already sheep are hearing the word and they're feasting. And Peter is doing that all throughout the beginning chapters of the book of Acts. He's feeding the sheep. Jesus is feeding the sheep through the means of the apostles. And now, as the chief shepherd of the sheep, Jesus doesn't have apostles anymore, here does he. Instead, what does he have? He raises up elders and pastors, offices that he appointed for his church. And what's the primary job description of an elder, of a pastor. It's to feed the sheep. It's to preach the word so that you can come and you can feast on the word, so that you can be spiritually nourished and given the strength that you need. And yet, if you're anything like me, our problem is, and maybe this is true with sheep as well, you get bored with the pasture lands, don't you? Oh man, green grass again? And you know, again, I already told you this, sheep will wander off and go eat trash. They'll eat poison if they're not guided to what is good for them to eat. And we're like that, aren't we? You know, I know know that the Word is preached there at church on Sunday, and the sacraments are administered, the ordinances, and God's people sing and pray. But you know, something's missing in my Christian life. I bet there's some secret knowledge that I'm not aware of. In this Christian book over here, that will give me that breakthrough that I need with my struggle against sin. Or, you know what? I, I just I feel bored in church. I, I'm going to pursue these ecstatic experiences where I feel really near to the Lord. What are we doing? We're eating trash. We're eating lies. Those won't nourish your soul. They're going to lead you on a wild goose chase. And the shepherd says, "Come." Eat this banquet that I've spread out before you in my word. Feast yourself and rest in the rich pastures of the means of grace because you do not bring about your sanctification by the flesh by trying really, really hard and white-knuckling it. No, rest in the means of grace knowing that they are the means that I use to transform you from one degree of glory to the next. And yet, Our hearts are so prone to wander from that, aren't they, brothers and sisters? And yet nourishment is found nowhere else. And by God's grace, he restores us and brings us back again and again. But he doesn't just give us food to eat. He also gives us water to drink, doesn't he? Look at the last half, the second half of Psalm 23, verse 2. He leads me beside still waters. And the first part of verse 3 there, he restores my soul. David, again, as a shepherd knows, you can't just give them food to eat. You also have to lead these sheep to where they can drink water. Now, your water source was important. One, you wanted to make sure that there wasn't like a dead carcass in there or something that would poison the sheep. But you also wanted to make sure that it wasn't a river or stream or body of water that was moving too quickly. Because what could happen is the sheep would start to waddle out there and they'd get caught up in the current, carried off, and they would drown. Or, you know, I mean, just be, it just would be a terrible thing. And here's the shepherd watching his sheep, like, disappear. The flock is getting smaller and smaller. And so it was important that he would lead them by a stream that was, was uh, not moving quickly but was still. You know the kind of stream where even if it's a couple feet deep, you can see to the very bottom because it's moving so slowly? and it's crisp, and it's clean. That's the kind of water that a good shepherd leads his sheep to. Well, what's David talking about here? David's, I believe, talking about, in his context, and we have more clarity about this in the New Covenant, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the the Holy Spirit is referred to metaphorically again and again as water, as rushing water. But Jesus removes any confusion, if there is any doubt in your mind, when he says what? He comes to um, the Feast of Booths in John chapter 7. And here's what he says in John chapter 7, 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Who's the one whose heart flows forth with with living water? Jesus. He is the one who believes God's word. And you go, where's that in the text? Just keep going. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus was going to raise from the dead, ascend to the Father's right hand after he'd paid the penalty for our sins, and he'd receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, as was promised to David's greater son, and then he would pour the Holy Spirit out on all flesh. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He says the same thing essentially in John 4. And this is how the Lord refreshes us. This is how he gives us initial refreshment. He gives us life. How he restores our soul when we're spiritually dead to God and we have hearts of stone. His spirit comes and gives us a heart of flesh that is alive to God and alive to the word. And so the spirit then takes the word and he applies it to us. And so we don't just have this initial Reviving and refreshing and restoration that happens in regeneration when we're given new hearts. But then all the days of our lives, we find the word refreshing because the Holy Spirit applies it to us. That's why David can say in Psalm 19:7, the law of the Lord is perfect. The Word of God does what? It revives our souls. It refreshes us, sustains us like the cool waters. That the sheep would drink deeply of as the shepherd led them there. It doesn't only say that he provides pasture for us as our good shepherd. Or water, refreshment. But he goes on to say he also provides for us what? Guidance. Look at the tail end of verse 3 there. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Again, how does the Lord do this? How does Jesus do this in our life? How, how does he lead us and guide us? He, first of all, puts us on this path of righteousness, again, by giving us a new heart, by regenerating us. He is the one who puts us on the righteous path in the first place. Because we're like sheep who have gone, our own stray, uh, gone astray, gone our own way. We're on the unrighteous path. And when he regenerates us and gives us a new heart, we're put on the righteous path. But he doesn't just put us on the path and say, all right, now you're on the right path, now stay on it. Don't veer. It's all up to you. It's in your hands. No, he says, I'm going to keep you on that path. I'm going I'm I'm to make sure that you don't wander too far. I am going to continue to call out to you. How? In my word. Isn't that what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 27? He says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. When the word is preached, the sheep hear the voice of Jesus. The goats wonder what in the world is going on. This is crazy. How come someone's standing up there preaching? This is ridiculous. That's what the goats think. But what are the sheep here? Those given to Jesus by the Father, they hear Jesus' voice as the word is preached. And they come, and they follow him. They obey him. That's how they stay on The righteous path. The Spirit gives us ears to hear. And the Spirit gives us a will and a desire and the the power to be able to walk in the ways of the Lord. Never perfectly. It's always progressively. But this is exactly what He does. This is how the shepherd, the good shepherd Jesus, provides for His sheep. Now here's the question that we should be asking ourselves. If we're such wretched sheep, if the Lord doesn't love us because we're lovable, why in the world does he do all of this? Why does he go to the trouble? Well, what does David say? Why does the Lord do all of these things? Why did he do them for David, for Israel? Why was this true in Jesus' life? And now why is this true for us? The Lord does this, not because you're such wonderful sheep, not because I'm such a wonderful sheep, but for his own name's sake. He does it for His glory. Because we're so wretched, and because we're so dependent, and so sinful, and weak, Him caring for us in this way ensures we don't get any of the glory, but He does. It puts His grace, His mercy, His power, His wisdom, His might on display, not yours, not mine. He provides and protects us and enters into this gracious relationship so that he would be exalted. And brothers and sisters, we should take great comfort in that. Because what I'm telling you is this relationship and this provision is not dependent upon your performance. It's dependent upon the Lord's character. And you want to know something glorious about the Lord's character? There's a lot of glorious things to know. But one of the most glorious things about his character is that he does not change same yesterday today and forever which means he is never going to fail in relating with you graciously covenantally and he is never going to fail in providing for you and this should bring unspeakable comfort to our hearts and again i say as if that weren't enough David lavishes even more comfort on us. We've seen the comfort that we have in the person of our good shepherd, the provision of our good shepherd. And lastly, finally, let's look at the comfort that we have in the protection of our good shepherd. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me. Actually, I'm just going to read verse 4 to start with, half of it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, it's interesting that we've probably all memorized this psalm as the valley of the shadow of death. If you look at note 2 down there at the bottom, it says actually how it should be translated is the valley of deep darkness. And that is, from all the scholars I've read, the more accurate way to interpret it in the Hebrew. But at the end of the day, I don't really know that it makes that big of a difference. What is the deepest, darkest valley that we walk through in this life? Is it not death? It is. And here's what David's saying. He's acknowledging the fact that the point that I opened with, that that death casts this long shadow over our lives, doesn't it? It's looming over our entire life. And we experience it in little ways when we get sick or when there's loss or there's pain or suffering or relational discord or your children are going astray or your spouse is going astray or whatever the case may be. We experience these small tastes of death, and they're a reminder of what? Death is coming. It's coming for you, it's coming for me. Who knows when? And it casts this long shadow over our lives. And yet, what does David say? David experienced all these things, by the way. You know his story, you know how much loss he experienced. The death of those he loved that he experienced. Remember how heartbroken he was when Absalom died? Even though Absalom was trying to to overthrow his rule and reign, David says, I wish I could take his place. And I'm sure you all have lost people in your life, and it, it leaves a hole, and you experience that, their absence the rest of your life. And yet David says, though I walk through these valleys, I will not fear. Now why is David saying that? Is it because he can handle the valleys I'm tough enough. I I, I can carry on no matter what. I can pick myself up by my bootstraps. I'm not going to be afraid. Is David whistling in the dark here? No. Why does he say he doesn't have to be afraid? He says, I do not need to be afraid, for you are with me. Now let me share something with you that I learned in my studies. Literarily, it just blows my mind. That little phrase there in verse 4, for you are with me, In the Hebrew, the Hebrew scholars say, that is the very center of this entire psalm. There are exactly 26 Hebrew words before that phrase and there are 26 Hebrew words after that phrase. For you are with me. And as if that weren't enough, David also included an inclusio. You know what an inclusio is? It's like a, you know about it because Chad talks about it a lot. It's a bookend that you put in writing or a unit of thought to highlight, hey, don't get lost in what I'm talking about here. And so it's at the front end of the thought and the tail end of the thought. And do you know what the inclusio is? You can see it there in your English Bible. In verse 1, the very first word in this psalm is Yahweh. It's Lord in verse 1. And in verse 6, What's one of the last few words there? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What does David want you to hear loud and clear? The Lord is with us, Israel. The Lord is with me. And so I do not need to fear the valley of the shadow of death. Now we have clearer revelation of this in the new covenant, don't we? Why? Because when Jesus, his birth is announced... To Mary, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, what is she told by the angel? Do you remember what Old Testament prophecy the angel quotes to her? It's Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. She says, His name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. God, the Son of God, has come in the flesh. Now, why is this such a huge promise? Because what's our greatest problem? You go all the way back to the garden, Adam and Eve were in God's place, in his presence, under his blessing. And when they rebelled against God, the saddest part of the narrative to me, and the saddest part for all of us should be when they're kicked out of the garden. They're kicked out of God's presence. They're kicked out of his blessing. And yet what is a thrill of hope that's just shot through the Old Testament? He comes to Abraham, he comes to Isaac, he comes to Jacob, he comes to Moses, he comes to Israel, he comes to David and says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be with you. And the crescendo of that is when the word, God himself, becomes flesh and dwells among us. And so this is why we don't need to fear Anything in this life. We don't need to fear death itself. And I want to camp out on this just a little bit longer. Matthew Henry, again in his commentary on Psalm 23, makes an incredible observation. He says, Listen, one of the reasons why we don't need to to fear the valley of the shadow of death is because it's just a shadow. For those who are in Christ, it's just a shadow. Are you afraid of a shadow? You shouldn't be. Let me give you an example. If, if my f- f- friend is holding up a sword, I have some weird friends, so one of them might have a sword. If they held it up and there was a, a shadow, a reflection on the ground, I could go over and kick the sword, and I don't have to be afraid that it's going to cut me, do I? It's just the shadow. It's not the thing itself. But if he lowers that sword, and I kick the blade, and that thing's sharp enough, and I kick it hard enough, I'm going to lose a couple toes. Because I'm now dealing with the thing itself. Here's the point as silly an illustration as that is, Jesus has dealt with the substance of death for you, if you're a Christian here this morning. What's the substance of death? It's that for our rebellion and sin against God, our transgressions, we deserve the eternal wrath of God as a just penalty for that rebellion. And yet on the cross, Jesus goes as a lamb led to the slaughter and he experiences that wrath for all the sins of the elect. Jesus takes that upon There's the substance of death. Unbelievers have to fear the substance of death because their souls will be required of them sadly which is why we want to preach the gospel to them. that They might be saved. And yet what what we're being told here is I've experienced the substance. You don't have to fear the shadow. Yes, it's unnatural that our body is separated from our souls, but that's going to be brought back together when Jesus returns. And so we don't have to fear it. That's why we can grieve even brothers and sisters who die before us with hope because they haven't experienced the substance. They've experienced the shadow. I'm not saying we don't experience death deeply. Don't hear me saying that. But we don't experience it or fear it the way unbelievers do. And why? Because the Lord is with us. And so we can say of death what the Apostle Paul said. In 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four through 57. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? You want to know where the sting of death is? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if death can't separate us from God, which it can't, can separate us from each other, and that's hard, but then it ultimately can't do us harm. Right? What what does Jesus tell you? What does the Father tell you? In John 10, 28 through 29, no one can snatch my sheep out of my hand. Not even death. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. And so this brings unspeakable comfort to us that he protects us in the valley of the shadow of death, and when we face death itself, because Jesus has experienced the substance of death in our place. But that's not the only way he protects us. He goes on to say, in the second half of verse 4, look at the very tail end there, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Again, David is a shepherd is, is, is borrowing on his understanding of how a shepherd cares for his sheep. Every good shepherd back then had two sticks, a staff and a rod. Let me take them each in turn. The rod was a short, fat stick. It was a weapon. And so if predators were coming and trying to nab some of the weak, straggling sheep, the shepherd would put himself between the predator and the sheep, and he'd wield this thing, and he'd smack them with it. And it would, at best-case scenario, wound them and they'd get away. Well, best-case scenario for the predator. A worst-case scenario for the predator, it would kill them. He'd smack them in the head. Many shepherds died trying to protect their sheep that way, but it was this weapon with which they would protect the sheep. Well, David was fully aware that the Lord protected him and Israel by fighting their battles for them. And Jesus is fighting our battles for us today, spiritually in the new covenant, isn't he, brothers and sisters? On the cross, while it looks like a defeat in many ways, it's actually a victory. And we know that because he resurrected from the dead. He deals the death blow strike with the rod that he carries as our shepherd to the flesh, the world, and the devil. He's conquered sin and death. He's conquered it all. That death blow has already been dealt. That's how he protects us. And he's still protecting us, isn't he? as our shepherd at the right hand of the Father. And that protection will reach its full consummation when he comes back and completely eradicates the devil and the world and the flesh, casting them into hell forever, banished as we celebrate and rule and reign with him. And so he's going to continue to protect us in this life. He will protect us when he comes back again. But we're not just protected from our external enemies. That's what the rod does. We're also protected from our internal enemies, the flesh. And you see, that's what the staff is for. Shepherd carried a staff so that as the path, as the sheep were on the paths of righteousness, if they started to go off, what would the, the shepherd do? He wouldn't smack them with the rod, might kill them. He would, he would smack them with the staff, nudge them back in, get back in line, you're starting to wander. That's what a good shepherd would do. How does our good shepherd do that for us, brothers and sisters? Because we're all like sheep who go astray. Even as new creation in Christ, as believers, our hearts are, as the old hymn says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And so what does Jesus do? He takes the word. The staff is the word. Just like, by the way, the rod is the word. How do we do battle with our enemies? Not with bombs and guns and knives, but by preaching the word. Our enemies are defeated. And we preach, and, and Jesus takes the word as the staff, and he convicts us by the Holy Spirit when we're starting to stray. Have you experienced that? You're reading a passage, or maybe you're hearing it this morning saying, I've been looking for, my, for be, to be able to care for myself, or I've been looking for this person to ultimately care for me. I've been looking for someone else to be a shepherd, or trying to be my own shepherd, and what I need to do is I need to look to the Lord as my shepherd. I hope we're all convicted this morning, but you see, that's Jesus taking the staff and nudging us back on the path. He's nudging us back, and we need that. Brothers and sisters, if he didn't convict us by the word and by the Holy Spirit, we would wander so far that we would be irreparably lost. Do you know that about yourself? And more importantly, do you know that your shepherd will keep you to the end? And one of the ways that he does that, one of the ways that he protects you is by convicting you of sin. We see this in the life of David. Remember when he sleeps with Bathsheba and Nathan comes? And Nathan's like, you're the man. That's the word of God to him. He was convicted, granted repentance, and restored. Same thing happened to Peter. The Lord protects us from our enemies without and within by his word and by the Holy Spirit. But he also protects us, look at verse 5, by preparing a table for us. Look at verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now, the imagery, the metaphor has changed a little bit here. Did you catch that? This this is not something that, that a shepherd does for his sheep, this is something that a host does for his guest. And hospitality was one of the most prized values or virtues in the ancient world. There's ancient lore where people would bring in some homeless, wandering beggar. And through their generosity, they eventually realized, hey, this is a God that we've brought into our home. And then the God blesses them because they pass the test of, will you turn me away or will you bring me in? And what we're told here is that Jesus, the Lord, brings us into his home. And and he lays out this table. It'd probably be more like a like an animal skin in his tent. And lays out this elaborate meal for us. And we feast. And he puts festal oil on our heads. It was typical in feasts at that time to do that. And he gives us a cup and we never see the bottom of it. He just keeps filling it. So, to the point where it overflows, right? When you're at a restaurant... Isn't the, the standard for how well the, sh- the waitress is doing is whether or not your cup gets empty? Your cup never gets empty when you're in the presence and in the house of the Lord because he's a good host. He lavishes grace upon you. And here's the incredible thing. Do you notice where this meal is being served? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I w- I'm surrounded by enemies. You see, this is not just a, hey, let's hang out sort of meal. This is a formal relationship being forged. These kinds of meals would often be engaged in after a formal covenant was entered into. And the consummation of it was, let's share a meal together. So it's not just, hey, we're hanging out and enjoying some food. No, this is a mutual bond of trust that's being forged here. And part of that trust is, I will protect you from your enemies. If they come after you, I'm going to protect you. And brothers and sisters, just to get right to the point, in the new covenant, what kind of feast is spread out before us? What kind of table do we come to and meet with the Lord? We're going to come to the Lord's Supper today, aren't we? We're going to come and we're going to feast on the Son by faith, who is our spiritual nourishment, in whom all spiritual blessings are given to us in Jesus in the heavenly. Look at how abundantly the Lord has provided for us in the presence of our enemies. Aren't we in the presence of our enemies? I don't mean look at each other and you're one another's enemies. We're in the world, not of the world. And look at how the Lord sustains us and provides for us in the presence of a hostile world that hates us, hates our Savior, hates our God, and hates the gospel. He lavishes goodness upon us. And elaborating on that, David goes on to say, here's some more protection. Look at verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You see what David's saying? He's not just saying, I'm not only not afraid of the evil that I know is going to be a part of my life, but I'm actually fully aware that as I walk through life's journey with the Lord, you know what's going to be following me? Goodness and mercy, the steadfast covenant love of the Lord. I'm never going to lose it. I'm never going to be able to outrun it. Brothers and sisters, I hope you take this to heart because I think so many of us, myself included, we spend our days worrying about what's behind us, what is, what is chasing us, what bad thing is awaiting us around the corner. How is life going to get worse? And yet, how are we supposed to be thinking about life? David says because of this relationship we have with the Lord and because of his provision and because of his protection, we should understand that what's nipping at our heels is not the next bad thing. It's goodness and mercy. Now, I'm not telling you that you're never going to get sick. This is not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. But what I am telling you is that even the valley of the shadow of death now is the Lord's goodness and mercy towards you. He's taken the last enemy and removed its thing, and now it's just a doorway to where we get to Him, and life everlasting. So, I don't know what's going on in your life, well, I know what's going on in a lot of your lives, but we're not going to go through each one of those circumstances, but are you seeing those things as coming from the hand of your sovereign Heavenly Father, and His intention, whatever it may look like from your vantage point, this is His goodness and mercy following you. I'm not saying cancer in and of itself is a good thing. I'm not saying the death of someone in your family is in and of itself a good thing, but what the Lord is going to bring about in your life from that is a good thing. And this is objectively true. You don't have to activate faith in order to to receive this blessing. These things are objectively true of how your shepherd provides and protects for you. And you see, because David knows this, How does he end this psalm? Look at the the last half of verse 6. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What David is saying is because the Lord has been so gracious to me, because the Lord has shown me this kind of provision and protection, you know what I don't want to miss out on? I do not want to miss out when the people of God gather in the earthly temple under the Old Covenant I am not going to miss a Sunday with God's people. Well, it wouldn't have been Sunday, the Lord's Day, the Sabbath. I am not going to miss any time when the people of God gather together because it's there that the shepherd is calling the sheep together and he's feeding them and he's refreshing them and he's reminding them that he is with them to bless them, not to curse them. And he spreads out a meal before them. And so that is where the sheep want to be if in fact you are a sheep. But if you notice a pattern in your life, receive this as the staff of the Lord Jesus. If you are seeing a pattern in your life where the things of this world are looking a whole lot better than what's happening on a Sunday morning or with God's people throughout the week, I'm not saying occasionally, I'm talking about consistently, regularly, then you need to repent for one of two things. Either you're a goat Or you're a sheep that's wandering and hopefully you feel this nudge and go, oh, yep, I need to get back on on path here. Because what makes you think that you're going to want to spend eternity doing this if you don't even want to spend one day a week doing this? If you don't want to spend several days throughout the week with God's people, being reminded that God is your good shepherd and you are sheep, that this is your identity. What what makes you think you're going to want to do that for eternity, worshiping God, if you don't even want to do it one day a week? And brothers and sisters, I'm not saying this to beat you up so that the numbers are higher on a Sunday morning. This is vital to your spiritual health so that you can endure and have comfort in this life, being reminded of these incredible truths. And see, David knows that this is just a foretaste of what we'll do for all eternity together with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so David says, I'm not just going to be committed to it then, I'm committed to it now because the Lord is my shepherd. Brothers and sisters, do you see what comfort is offered to us? That the God of the universe has said, your weak, dependent, sinful, needy sheep, I don't need you, but I love you. And so I've entered into this relationship with you and I will care for you. You will have no needs. Will you believe that? And if you want examples of that, look how he provides for us. In the Word, again and again, with the Holy Spirit, with God's people, the flock. You see how this is not an individual identity. It is our identity together as the sheep of the pasture. And He protects us. Some of you go, I'm such a weak sheep, I know I'm going to wander. I know I wander too. And yet He brings us back again and again with His staff. And He lays out a meal. We're going to enjoy it together. I just hope this washes over your heart and mind and soul and comforts you, not just now, but all the days of your life. Hear what Jesus in his earthly ministry said to his disciples in Luke 12, 32. He said, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You don't earn it. Don't think he's stingy. He's not. Your cup is overflowing. He's going to give you the kingdom, so don't be afraid. He's giving you himself. And that's all you need until that great day when we see the reality of Revelation seven seventeen, at the end of all things. And what's the reality that John sees in his apocalyptic vision? For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. The slain lamb who took away our sins, he will be our shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Brothers and sisters, behold the God of all comforts, your good shepherd. May we say all the days of our lives with great joy, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let me pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for the unspeakable privilege of being your children being the sheep of your pasture, being so well cared for, perfectly cared for, perfectly protected. Lord, help us to believe these truths ourselves and encourage one another with them them constantly. we pray that you would take your word and apply it to us, that as your sheep we would be well nourished this morning. Spirit, do that, we pray. And I pray for any sheep that are wandering that you would bring them back. And perhaps sheep that are of another fold would hear your voice, Jesus, and your spirit would regenerate them, and they would be saved and eat and refreshed by all that you offer in your sacred word. But we're humbled before you and so thankful that you're our shepherd. Knowing that, may we take your gospel to the ends of the earth, fearing nothing, because you prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies and we will dwell with you all the days of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.